Jesus dropping on my face. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, Use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, out of all the movie genres, my favorite has to be horror. Halloween is my favorite holiday, and I look forward to all the scary movie marathons each year. There is a universality to being scared, especially in the safety of your own home. You know that you're watching a movie, but the combination of a filmmaker building tension along with a haunting score makes you stand on edge, and you're ready for that release. Even when you can predict a jump scare is coming, it still gets you to react, even if it's just a twitch of the pinky. When I would go to Blockbuster Video to rent movies, I ran straight to the horror section and based my choices on the box cover artwork alone. I didn't care who directed it, who starred in it. If it had an eye-catching cover, I was committed. And to be honest, sometimes the best part of the movie was the artwork. I know it sounds cliche, but I love the box covers for The Fog, The Thing, and They Live, and remember seeing them on the shelves. I was a huge fan of John Carpenter, even before I knew it. The 80s were a time of horror movie franchises. Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Child's Play, Hellraiser, Critters, Tremors, Sleepaway Camp, Puppet Master and anthology series like Tales from the Crypt, Freddy's Nightmares, and Friday the 13th, the series. Even the bad standalone horror movies during this period were enjoyable to watch, no matter how cheesy or paint-by-the-numbers. I was allowed to watch these movies with my family when I was young. I saw all the Universal Monster movies and still appreciate them to this day. Night of the Living Dead was one of my favorites for a long time. They're coming to get you, Barbara, is my second most quoted phrase from a horror movie behind Thanks for the ride, lady, from Creepshow 2. I didn't scare easily and never had nightmares, but I have a distinct memory from my childhood where I was in my parents' bedroom watching Friday the 13th on WPIX 11 in New York. Since it was commercial television, the movie was slightly edited for language and violence. I was probably around seven years old. It came to the ending, and I was happy that Alice had escaped from, spoiler alert, Mrs. Voorhees. That delicate piano music was playing, and she looked so peaceful in that boat. Then when Jason emerged from the lake and dragged her in, I screamed. Loudly. I probably would have been more legitimately scared, except that I heard my brother in the den laughing hysterically. He knew that scene was coming. But that's when I realized that there is fun in being scared. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars, watch at your own risk. Three stars is standard fare. Four stars is worth checking out. Five stars, must see. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca or Jaws or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. 
So let's jump into it, keeping the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie The Lost Boys from 1987, about a family who moves to a coastal town in Northern California, which is inhabited by vampires. My initial thought was, I hope they don't sparkle. It was directed by the late Joel Schumacher, who is famous for helming St. Elmo's Fire, Flatliners, The Client, 8mm, Flawless, and infamous for Batman and Robin. He also directed music videos for In Excess, Lenny Kravitz, Seal, and The Smashing Pumpkins. The story and screenplay was co-written by Jan Fisher and James Jeremias, with additional screenwriting by Jeffrey Bohm, who scribed Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Phantom, and The Dead Zone. So we find a mother and her two sons driving into downtown during the title sequence, which includes a montage over the song People Are Strange. On the Welcome to Santa Carla billboard, spray-painted on the back is Murder Capital of the World. There are posters of missing children, punk rockers with mohawks, dyed hair and piercings, a woman kissing a rat, a real rat. I'm not referring to a man as a rat. PETA wouldn't like that. On the beach, a sign reads, No Lifeguard on Duty. You immediately get the sense that this isn't the greatest of towns. Diane Wiest portrays Lucy, the upbeat mother of two sons. She appeared in The Birdcage, Edward Scissorhands, Parenthood, and the underrated TV series Life in Pieces. Her character is recently divorced and moving the family from Phoenix to live with her father. Jason Patrick plays older son Michael, which should be easy to remember not only for its commonality, but because his name is said over a hundred times throughout the movie. He's appeared in Solar Babies, Rush, Narc, and Sleepers, which is my favorite role of his. Close second, Speed 2. He's a bit of a reserved, moody older brother type. The youngest son, Sam, is portrayed by the gone-too-soon Corey Haim. His roles include Silver Bullet, Lucas, License to Drive, and Dream a Little Dream. His character encapsulates the 80s with brightly colored clothing and a deep love for MTV. They arrive at the ranch, and her father is on the porch playing dead. He's an eccentric fellow who has some odd ground rules and quirks. He's played by Bernard Hughes, who is a famous character actor with over a hundred credits to his name and an Emmy Award for the series Lou Grant. The family decide to explore the boardwalk. Michael and Sam attend a concert, which includes an appearance by Tim Capello as the lead singer and saxophonist. But let me tell you, he's no Eddie Money. He's shirtless for some reason and has on more baby oil than an 80s professional wrestler. Michael spots a mysterious young woman in the crowd named Star, played by Jamie Gertz, who is known for 16 Candles, Less Than Zero, Mischief, and Twister. Immediately, Michael is infatuated with her, and she's set up as a love interest. Sam explores a comic book store and meets the Frog Brothers, Alan and Edgar, played by Jameson Newlander and Corey Feldman, respectively. Feldman was coming off the success of The Goonies and Stand By Me. He made an interesting character choice by doing a vocal inflection that sounds like Christian Bale in his Batman cadence. The Frog Brothers warn Sam about the vampire infestation in the town and give him comic books to read up on the subject. He's not exactly convinced. Meanwhile, the mother finds a literal lost boy and brings him into the video store to see if the clerk knows his mother. The clerk is named Max and portrayed by Edward Herman, who is best known for his role in The Gilmore Girls, but will always be FDR to me. Michael follows Star, and we meet David and his gang. He's played by Kiefer Sutherland, who had a really good run with that bleach blonde hair. Outside of 24, he was in Flatliners, Stand By Me, Young Guns, The Three Musketeers. A very strong career. 
One of the gang members is Marco, portrayed by Alex Winter, who played Bill in the Bill and Ted trilogy, but he's also an accomplished director of documentaries like Downloaded, Deep Web, The Panama Papers, and Showbiz Kids. Eventually, Michael is initiated into the group, but he's not exactly aware of what he's getting involved in. He drinks the blood of a vampire, which makes him a half-vampire, but he needs to make a kill to become a full-fledged member. Sam figures out that Michael is a creature of the night, and he calls upon the Frog Brothers for help. They explain that if you kill the head vampire, all half-vampires will return back to normal, so now they must figure out who that is. The Lost Boys is an entertaining movie. I believe it's one of the first to feature vampires as young and sexy, so it's partially to blame for Twilight. They included the standard vampire lore, no reflections in mirrors, only coming out at night, healing powers, the need to be invited in, and garlic and holy water as a deterrent. This movie screams 80s. If I were to make a parody of an 80s movie, and it was exactly like The Lost Boys, people would say to me, that's too exaggerated. The 80s weren't like that. But no matter how outdated it might seem, overall, the film was still enjoyable. It had a good mixture of horror and campiness. I think tongue was firmly planted in cheek. It took a while before we experienced an on-screen kill, but it was worth the wait. You can see the emergence of the visual style and camera movements that would become a staple of Joel Schumacher films. The opening includes a helicopter shot over the ocean with the moon reflecting in the ripples of the water. Later, there's an inventive shot with Jason Patrick, which starts out in a close-up, but is soon revealed that he's on the ceiling of his bedroom. The cinematography was done by Michael Chapman, who also filmed Raging Bull, The Fugitive, Taxi Driver, and Evolution. <laughs> that, just, that just makes me laugh. There were some pretty expansive sets, especially The Vampire's Cave. The makeup and effects, particularly in the final battle sequence, were impressive. The soundtrack has a mix of original songs including Cry Little Sister by Gerald McMahon and Lost in the Shadows by Lou Graham, lead singer of Foreigner, as well as interesting covers like Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Roger Daltrey, The Doors' People Are Strange by Echo and the Bunnymen, and The Easy Beats' Good Times by Jimmy Barnes and In Excess. The score was composed by Thomas Newman, son of Alfred, cousin of Randy. He has written the music for Road to Perdition, The Shawshank Redemption, Scent of a Woman, 1917, Less Than Zero, Fried Green Tomatoes, and my personal favorite, Finding Nemo. I'm not even kidding. I like listening to horror scores from the 80s because they tend to mix orchestral elements with synthesizers, percussion, and rock instruments so seamlessly. They always find new ways to create eerie sounds and haunting melodies. My favorite songs from the score are You Must Feed, Preparations, and They're Coming. The film has a runtime of 98 minutes, perfecto. It had a budget of $8.5 and grossed $32 million at the box office. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Boardwalk Empire, Gyrating Saxophonist, The Two Corys, Cave of Wonders, Gooba Gaba, One of Us, Hounds of Hell, Bonfire of the Vampires, and Monster Bashers. I give it three and a half out of five stars. Add half a star if you suck blood, or just suck. If you've seen The Lost Boys and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called MattWatchThat Playback. 
I've always been fascinated with the ocean. It's so vast, and much is unknown about these waters that cover 70% of the Earth. The world's biggest waterfall and longest mountain range is underwater. There are more historic artifacts in the oceans than in all the world's museums combined. Scientists have only identified one-third of marine life beneath the surface. We know more about the Moon and Mars than we do our own ocean floor. There could be a Loch Ness monster lurking in the depths. Who knows? I was never a big beach person, though. My grandparents had a pool in their backyard, so it was much more convenient to spend an afternoon there than at an overpopulated beach. Plus, in the 1980s, there was medical waste and hypodermic needles washing up on the shores of Long Island, so that pretty much stopped my interest in swimming in the ocean. Add to that the tons of plastic debris and millions of gallons of oil spills over the years, I stopped eating fish as well. Granted, the preservatives and steroids that are injected into our food supply is just as unhealthy, but, you know, I, I have to pick my battles. Even though I no longer swim in the ocean, I can't imagine not living close to it or any body of water. As a cancer, it's probably the water sign in me. In the South Pacific Ocean, there's an invisible landmark called the Pole of Inaccessibility, also known as Point Nemo, which has nothing to do with the clownfish. It was named after Captain Nemo from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the Mysterious Island. It's the place in the ocean where it's furthest away from all lands. In fact, it's so far away that often the astronauts orbiting in the International Space Station are the nearest humans to that point. In 1997, over a thousand miles east of Point Nemo, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recorded a sound dubbed the bloop, which was louder than that of a blue whale. There was some speculation it could be an unknown sea creature, though other recent recordings have a lot of similarity to the sound of ice formations cracking. I think all of this is a reminder of how small we are in the big scheme of things, and what we don't know about the ocean can be scary as hell. I'm posting three videos on the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. The first is by Tech Insider called This Incredible Animation Shows How Deep the Ocean Really Is. The next is from Brightside, What Would a Trip to the Mariana Trench Be Like? And the last is a recording of The Bloop. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. This is the definitive documentary about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It has interviews and behind the scenes with the cast and crew involved in making these movies come to life, including Wes Craven, Robert England, Heather Langenkamp, Alice Cooper, Rennie Harlan, Miko Hughes, Tom McLaughlin, Charles Bernstein, John Saxon, etc., etc., etc. The documentary goes in depth on each movie, beginning with the original. A good place to start. It includes footage of how they achieve some of the memorable shots and special effects. There are deleted scenes and outtakes which offer an added dimension to these movies. The cast and crew talk about the evolution of the character Freddy Krueger, from the nightmarish figure in the earlier films to the Vegas stand-up comedian he became in later offerings. It was interesting to see how much merchandise was created at the height of Freddy Krueger's popularity, including toys that were marketed towards children. The documentary also goes into a bit of the history of New Line Cinema, a fledgling movie studio who released the original Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. On a budget of $1.8 it ended up grossing $57 million, bringing the studio out of the doldrums. 
It was given the nickname, The House That Freddy Built. New Line Cinema was a player in Hollywood, and in 1994 was acquired by Turner Broadcasting for $500 million. The movie franchise was spun off into an anthology series called Freddy's Nightmares. It was hosted by Freddy Krueger, and sometimes he made a cameo appearance within the stories as well, but it had no other connection to the franchise. The series was intended to air in late night and push the limits of graphic content, but it was sold in syndication, which meant that on some networks, it could air in the afternoons when impressionable children could be watching. As usual, this caused a bit of a stir, and instead of parents changing the channel or turning off the television, they decided to shirk personal responsibility and try to get the show cancelled. Freddy's Nightmares went for two seasons, 44 episodes, and featured early appearances by Kyle Chandler, Morris Chestnut, John Cameron Mitchell, Laurie Petty, and Brad Pitt. But the main focus of the four-hour documentary are the movies. If you're a film major, film geek, or appreciate filmmaking, you'll enjoy the candidness by the cast and crew regarding some of the lesser entries in the franchise, but it's still engrossing to hear about the process. I know I've often complained about the lengths of movies and not being a huge fan of documentaries, but Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, doesn't drag and keeps your interest on the journey of this iconic franchise. It was released in 2010 and available on two-disc DVD, which includes additional interviews and featurettes. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, guys, we're on our own. And anthology series like Tales from the Crypt, Friday the 13th, and Fri- and something. The other one. It had a budget of $85 million. No, it didn't. No, it did not at all. Immediately, Michael is infuriated. Infuriated with her. This is the definitive documentary on the... Oh, no, no. Whoa! Wow, that has never come out of me before.